Scribes Journey is supported by our patrons. Join them today at patreon.com slash scribesjourney. Welcome to the Scribe's Journey, where stories begin. I am your host, the Calm Scribe, Travis J. Crokin, and I'm being joined by my fellow hosts. I'm the Pedantic Scribe, LJ Stanton. And I am the Oddball Scribe, T.R. Albee. And how are you both doing today? I am recovering from surgery, and it's been a great day so far today, which is always exciting. It is starting to snow, and uh, my son is running around like a, a madman. Unfortunately, it's not sticking, so if you hear any squealing in the background, it might be a small child uh, yelling in glee. We're actually getting snow here as well. We are getting another snowstorm. I think it's the 987th snowstorm of this winter so far. Every week, we're getting massive dumpings. But apart from the looming, backbreaking work of shoveling tons of snow, I'm in great spirits today as well. That's why I left Canada and went to California. It's a little windy. It's warm. Cozy. Yeah, how, how's that going for you lately? California has just been <laughs> raked over the coals by Mother Nature the past couple of weeks. Touche. Yeah, I've been, I've been wondering whether or not I'd see you floating down the river of, that is like most of California on like a cardboard box with like, you know, your husband and whatnot behind you. I, I think we're all we just, just get... waiting for California to break off and like float into the ocean itself. Yeah, that, uh, you know, we're not quite there yet. Hopefully many, many years down the road. I've got some boats to invest in first before that can happen. Absolutely. I'm gonna need Might want to get on that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, today we are here to discuss prepping and proofing for publishing. We have walked through a overview of a lot of the writing process from conception and outlining and writing and drafting and revising and all of those things that are important elements. And now we're getting some of the really exciting parts, prepping and proofing for publishing. So why is the prep for proofing and publishing so important? It's so important because this is now you're getting to the aspect of your book that is going to help sell it and get people involved right away. So you want to make sure that it's all those little things that feel right when somebody is looking at your book, whether it's they're picking up a hardcover, a paperback, or an ebook edition. You want to make sure that your font is immersive. You want to make sure that your cover drags people in and doesn't let them go. And that when you're looking at the pages of your uh, table of contents on your ebook, that it's not a jumble of weirdly formatted mess that someone's going to look at and go, you know what? I really regret paying $5 for this book. I'm getting a refund. This is, this is an exciting topic because we're going to go through a bunch of different things that I haven't really thought of at this point, but you guys both have. So I'm excited. It's, to hear not, it's not something you tend to think of early on. And honestly, I don't think until you get to this point that you really consider things like what fonts are in your favorite books. Because I, I guarantee if you go and pick up books off of your shelf right now, you can find the information for what the font is at the back of the book, most likely. And you're going to find that it's different fonts, even depending on the genre that the book is in. But you won't really have noticed it because it just works. And that's one of the things that I love about this is I've always 
stood by the fact that writing is not a solo sport. When you're writing, you're working with all the people that we've discussed through the podcast up to this point, from beta readers, experts, people that you're just bouncing ideas off of. It's not a solo thing that you sit in a dark room by yourself and pounding away at the typewriter. But this is where it gets exciting because the finish line is drawing near. For me, what is exciting is you get to spread the love and the work to other people. You now get to bring in cover artists. You now get to bring in other people that are going to help you create maps, look at your fonts, do different things. And it becomes more of a team element in this. And you're spreading work around to other creatives, which is a fantastic thing to do anytime you have that opportunity. I really want to second that, that it is the, you're learning even the things that you need to acknowledge you're not good at. You know, if you don't have an eye for design, this is the time where you start interviewing the people who are good at it so that you can put your book's best foot forward. The only thing really on the list that we have, right, I really thought about was interior art. But I never thought you would have to actually figure out hiring someone to do the font. Now, the art, yes, cover art, I get that. But to choose formatting or a font type like we've talked about, wouldn't that something that we be able to use a program for? Maybe you're out there and you can't afford someone to do the formatting, but what other options would, we, would you have? I guess that's two questions because I asked, where would you find someone? And what if you can't find someone or again, can't afford it? So, There's a lot of ways that you can find people. You can go through different communities that you may be a part of. You can go through different organizations that you're a part of. Uh, there's also other companies out there that allow you to search out freelance workers, word of mouth, looking on social media, putting out advertisements or methods of doing this as well. And there are programs that can help you most definitely figure out the formatting of your work and the text and the font. But it is always good if you don't have experience in that to at least talk to someone with experience. If they're not, if you're not able to afford to pay them for it, at least see if you can just talk to them for a couple of minutes and see what they think are the key things that you should be looking for. Because it's not a matter of just picking a font and saying that looks pretty and putting it onto a page. But there's also, you know, creating maps. There's the cover art. With cover art, we're talking about back art, spine art as well, and anything that's interior artwork as well. So there's a lot of things to be taken into account for this, where you might need experts or professionals to do for you instead of taking it on for yourself. And that's the thing is I think that there are some things you need to prioritize higher than others. So we've talked a lot about editors, finding good editors, finding good beta readers. These are the things that I think help sell your story the best, plus your cover art. We've all seen the books that might be amazing, but when we look at their cover, we just kind of go, I'm not interested and walk away. Personally, for me, I put a lot more of my time, effort and money into finding a good cover artist and a good graphic designer for the typography of the cover and the interior flaps of the hardcover. When it came to the font styling for the interior and the pages, I spent a lot more time just looking at comparable books. So I write medieval fantasy that's set in an African, Middle Eastern, Asian inspired world. So that meant that I took a look at things like the Devabad trilogy, the Poppy War and Priory of the Orange Tree to see what the fonts were there so that I could use a similar font for my own book. That's something I think that you can do yourself if you've got the time and the energy and whatnot. But when it comes to the artwork, I definitely recommend going and finding someone, especially for things like maps. People love maps, too. 
I think especially if you are writing any kind of fantasy and you have it in a world that is unfamiliar to people, it's important to have a map in your book and potentially even on your author website so that people can go and look at it and go, that's where these things are. That's how far away they are from each other or how close and understanding even just the geography of the continent or the world that they're working with. As far as the artwork, I agree. If you're doing a kid's book or a children's book from middle grade to a picture book and you're not an artist, you definitely need to hire someone. But yeah, the the SCBWI, Travis, like you said, that group for children's literature writers and illustrators, it's a great resource for, for that. I'm not sure if on that site you would be able to find someone to, to do that type of formatting. And maybe I'm wrong. And if you're a part of that organization, please leave us a comment. Let us know if I'm wrong. But I, I would think I would probably take it on kind of like LJ said, figure out you know, the program use, I never actually realized, because you mentioned earlier when we first started started the podcast, that the font and what font they're using might be actually in the back of the book. And I was literally about to turn around and go grab a book and see if there was the references to these things. So I never even thought about that. Like, that's just, to me, I was like, wow, really? I didn't, didn't even know. It is. And now it's more of the fiddly bits that you need to pay attention and make sure you get done. There's, this is where you want to do your dedications, your thank you page, make sure you've got your author author bio in there. Make sure you have all of the finer details that wrap everything up and you still have to edit those. You still have to review them. You still have to make sure that they are all done to the best of the ability that they can be done. But you also brought up a really good point there, Travis, about the dedications and the thank you page. You know, that in the author bio is probably something that you wouldn't want to hand off to someone. You, that you can write to your own on your own, and then you can just, you know format it the way you commonly see it in a book that you might have on your shelf or somewhere else. So, well, and I'm going to add in being called out completely by uh, beta readers and whatnot that glossaries are incredibly important when you're oh. writing something that is either sci-fi or fantasy, that there's a lot of just basically made up jargon and lingo and whatnot that needs to be clarified for your reader. I thought I did a good enough glossary the first time I wrote it. And my beta reader looked at me and went, this is terrible. This is like half of what you need. And so I rewrote it. And now I have been informed that at minimum, it needed a pronunciation guide. So these are things that you do need to kind of take into consideration. And if you're not sure how to write a pronunciation guide, that is something you can just reach out to a professional, um, you know, or look at just asking editors, ask around, find out if there's anyone who would be willing to help you with that, as that is incredibly important for people who are reading it, who like to actually know how things are pronounced instead of just kind of glossing over it and go like, oh, that name is this shape and I move on. Um, especially for anyone who might be reading your book aloud for whatever reason, whether that's your audiobook narrator or even just people reading your book to their kids, family, friends, etc. This is incredibly important to do. It is. And I was going to add on to that, even if it's not a science fiction or fantasy, if you have a character heavy book and you've got 20 or 30 characters, people need to be able to keep track of who those characters are. So even if it's just a character glossary at the back of the book, and it helps prevent arguments. I remember as a teenager reading the Dragonlance novels, and one of the main characters of the twins is, the way I pronounced it was Carmen. But a friend of mine pronounced it a Caramon because it was C-A-R-A-M-O-N. And we got into massive debates over whether or not it was Carmen or Caramon. And in the end, I believe in the movie they came out with, it was Carmen. So I was right, of course. 
but <laughs> it's important to have something like this that's laid out for people to understand. And again, we're talking about speed bumps. And if they're constantly having to stop and stare at a name, it can be really difficult. So a glossary of terms is an important thing. So all that being said, at this point, before you even get to the idea of proofreading, you still need to write your glossary of entries, create your maps, choose or create or have created your interior artwork, hire your cover artwork if you haven't already done that, write your dedications in your thank you page, create your author bio, and have all of these little elements ready for the proofreading and the layout stage that's going to be coming next. So we're about to take a break. When we come back from our break, we will discuss what all books require to self-publish regardless of your genre. Welcome back to part two of prepping and proofing for publishing. So we've discussed what goes into the final preparations. Now we're going to get into what all self-published books absolutely require when you're looking at your self-publishing journey. Beginning of that is choosing your layout and your formatting. Uh, the most common is six by nine. There are a lot of good templates out there that will help you with this. And depending on how you're self-publishing and who you're going through, that common trim is going to change. Offhand, I don't recall what my hardcover trim was, but we were using uh, Ingram Spark for printing it, which means that we had to follow their style guide for how everything was laid out and the formatting and sizing. So that is one of the things that you'll find help with is that either you can hire a professional to take care of all of that for you, or if you are on a budget and you're doing it yourself, you are able to take the guides from the distributors because that is the thing, again, that Ingram Spark is not a publisher, they're a distributor. And so their formatting, you'll be able to follow that list and have your book formatted in that way. And I'm wondering whether or not different types of, not necessarily genres, but like different levels of the reader, right? There might be different formatting sizes for that as well. Uh, not just because of the yeah. of the font level, but maybe I mean, sometimes it's based a little bit more inside. No, um, that's but... a, a really good point that you're bringing up there because you do have to actually think about the physical impact of your book. And if you are writing for children, you know, with their tiny little hands and not being able to haul around a massive hardcover very easily, that is the thing you have to keep in mind with your formatting. There are, if you go and look in your library or in your favorite indie bookstore, or I guess your big mass market ones too, that you'll see, you know, the kids section books are a different size often than more of the adult sized books, just by virtue of trying to keep in mind the size of the person that you're catering to. And the attention span and what's going to attract them and draw them. The other thing that's interesting as well with this, as I say, the most common bar six by nine is the most common kind of paperback. And that's actually changing. There is now, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you go into your big box bookstores or whatever bookstores you will go to, you will notice that the new pocket edition of books are actually slimmer and taller. But it is, and what it does ultimately come down to is, like it was just said, is the impact that you're looking for and the overall look and feel for the book that you're writing, whether it's for the age group or just for 
how it's going to feel. Not everybody wants to read a hardcover book. Not everyone has space in their shelves for a hardcover book. Not everybody wants to read a super thick book. So adding a little bit more width and height might help be able to thin down your book a little bit. So there's a variety of things to take into account. Yeah, and I wonder whether or not it's also the the amount of words that might be on a page too, and you guys would know better, right? So, and I'm not sure if it's something with a print-on-demand type thing that would have different requirements between a hardcover compared to a softcover. Because again, it might be less words on the page for a hardcover, obviously because of formatting and font size, you'll have it. But I'm not sure whether or not per the industry, you can only have X amount of lines or X amount of text, uh, lines of text for a soft uh, cover, but it's something to take or hardcover, right? I'm not sure if there are standards for that that I'm not aware of because I haven't done it, but... I but. haven't found that. It's more for me looking at the size of the font for the interior and knowing that like a mass market book, right. usually it can have a really tiny font because you are kind of trying to cram as much onto a page as possible so that you're not having a massively thick mass market, whereas your hardcover usually has slightly bigger font than your mass market and whatnot. But even for that, you do need to consider how long your book is. There's a couple of considerations for that. You don't want a book that is so large that it's going to be excessively costly to print and that it's going to be too heavy for the average reader to want to even pick up. And it comes down to, like I'll just said, font size, layout, the overall view of the page, you don't want a black wall of text because that is exhausting to read. It's exhausting to look at. And you need to have the white space taken into account very much. And these are some of the things that you need to be aware of when you are laying out and getting your book formatted is the visual impact of it. And if you're hitting any of these major faux pas in the publishing industry. So there's something on this list that I, I it's about choosing the final title, right? Oh, no. Oh, right. I know. Right. So like I always have a working title, but when you're choosing, because this is part of that, you, if you're not sure or dead set, or maybe that's not a question you asked your beta readers, what do you think of the title? Maybe it should be something you put on your beta readers list. How do you handle that? Like when you're choosing the final title, do you kind of throw that at the beta readers or alpha readers? I'm like, how does this, what, how do you feel about this? Is this something that jives with you or maybe it doesn't? So for me, I'll throw the title at anybody and everyone that I can, not just beta readers, to see what they think. Here's a If they haven't read the book, here's a synopsis. Do you think this fits in? Or just how does this feel when you say the title? So I personally will hit as much of a test market as I possibly can and occasionally even go on social media and ask, what do people think of this as a title? Yeah, I don't mind the idea of throwing it at beta readers. For me personally, when it comes to naming my book, when it comes to a title, I want a title that is relevant to the book, relevant to the series. The first book in my series is The Dying Sun, which is an allegorical title to it, given that it is a religious war where the god of the sun became the only god in this pantheon. The whole point of the book is that there isn't the rest of the pantheon is coming back and there is going to be the end of his reign if everything goes according to plan, which things never do. Um, the next book is called The Pantheon Prophet, which is a throwback to a title briefly mentioned uh, to one of the characters in The Dying Sun. So you want to have titles that are meaningful to the book that your readers are going to be able to kind of poke at and be like, oh, I get it. And that is mentioned like at least once in your book. The words the dying son are mentioned at least once in the book. The words the Pantheon Prophet 
are mentioned at least once in that book. One thing I didn't consider until I started talking with beta readers who started to abbreviate the names is that you should give some consideration to how your titles abbreviate. I'm considering that for how I title the third book. Because, of course, The Dying Sun is T-D-S. So, of course, it's tedious when you read it really fast. And that's not what I was going for. And then The Pantheon Prophet is T-P-P. And I'm really not feeling the toilet paper aspect of that. But it's what we're going with. So I'm (laughs) hoping to change it around a little bit for the third book. Um, The working title on that is just Baghdad because I just use city names for all of my titles until I figure out what the hell I'm naming it. I know myself and a lot of people get ridiculously excited when you find the title in a book. I don't know what it is, but it's like finding a little golden egg somewhere inside the book. The other thing, too, is that for search engines and things like that, that actually is a metric that is brought up is the title of the book included in the book. So it is actually more of an important aspect than you might consider. Speaking of search engines, another thing you want to do is take a look to see, are there any other books that have that title already? What are they about? How best-selling are they? Because you don't want to, using LJ's example of The Dying Sun, to type in The Dying Sun or have a reader type in The Dying Sun into a search engine and have three other books that are been around for a lot longer and have huge readerships push you completely out of the way. So the searchability for your title is going to factor in as well because you don't want to be conflated with another book that may be, you know, about a conspiracy theorist that thinks that the sun is going to explode next year. It's important to make sure that it's kind of a clean title that's out there. When does the Absolutely. like the price and like the ISBN and stuff like that come in to this? Is something that, you know, because obviously you have to register it to get the ISBN and you got to figure out a price. How do you, is it similar to like when you're comparing fonts, you're looking at, okay, here's the average price of this book, of a book of similar type of length. Because again, the ISBN is just something you would register for. So for the ISBN, yeah. you can get those like 10 at a time. You can bulk purchase ISBNs, which is the most effective if you plan on writing several books. Even if you're not writing a series, just having that. You also need to have a different ISBN for every format of your book. So if you have a hardcover, a mass market, and an ebook, you need to have three different ISBNs. So if you make major edits to say the hardcover of your book, I'm not talking about like you changed your hardcover from, you know, glossy to matte or something like that. But if you go in six months later and you change, like you see that there's a bunch of typos or something that you didn't catch and you go in and start changing things, you need to have an updated ISBN because you've now changed those books. So ISBNs are very important and you will need more of them than you think. So definitely bulk buy your ISBNs. So if you're Uh, planning on selling your book on a mass market print on demand type service type thing, if you have one that's an ebook and you have one that you registered that as a paperback and one as a hardcover, you need three ISBNs. Yes. Wow. And you're right. They are pretty expensive. Like I was looking into that as well. I was like, well. Not necessarily. No, they're not necessarily that expensive. I know that I went through, I think, Ingram Spark and they were not terribly expensive. So I think there's only one seller of ISBNs for North America, one seller of ISBNs for Europe and one seller of ISBNs um, elsewhere. Wow. It's yeah, it can get complicated. (laughs) Now, if you're going through Amazon self-publishing, then they set you up with the ISBN through going through that service. Okay, They help you with that. Can you then take that ISBN you got 
and you got from there and put it, let's say, I don't know, on another service that does print on demand and use the same ISBN? Or will they also give you another one? Because then that kind of gets confusing because you have one paperback over here, the one ISBN and another paperback over there that has a different ISBN. Like maybe it's just safer to go through and get it, you know, like you're saying, LJ, and then use that on here's this, here's that, here's this, you know, yeah. on this service. So, but so I'm going not. through Amazon will actually, they will distribute your book to the bunch of different places where they okay. can be sold and picked up. It's generally one ISBN per book. The other thing to keep in mind as well is when you do publish a book, by law, I'm pretty sure in the United States as well, I know definitely in Canada, but by law, you actually have to register your book in Canada with the, I believe it's the parliamentary li library, I believe in the United States, you have to register your book with the uh, Library of Congress. So there are a lot of little details that you may not be aware of when you're going and self-publishing a book. It's more than just opening something on Amazon, dumping in some text and hitting print on demand and letting it go. There are finer details that you need to take into account. It's always a matter of do, do your research for everything. It's not just doing your research for what you're publishing, the content of your book, but make sure that you're doing everything correct and double checking things as you go through every step. What about the price? I kind of touched on that a little bit, but how would you go about like when you guys put your books up on the for sale, how did you guys determine what you're going to sell it for? Was it based on a comparison of existing books or was it, you know, here's my price that I think I deserve? It's solely based on my ego and how much I thought people <laughs> should be throwing money at me. No, that's exactly what you do is you look at the books in the industry, look at books that are relative page length, content, genre, and you see what's this, what's out there and what's selling. There are programs that can help you do that and give you those metrics. But it really is a matter of doing, again, your research. See what's out there. See what the thing is. You don't want to be outpriced and you also don't want to be super underpriced. But there is parameters that you need to take into account. And not to mention the fact that when you sell a book for $10, you don't get $10. And that's the thing. I just pulled up my comps. So for... The Dying Sun, which is a 604 page hardcover book, it retails at $26.99 in the United States because that is approximately the same price as a lot of other books that are in the same comp range. So I primarily was looking at books like the Devabad trilogy, the Poppy War, Priory of the Orange Tree, those kinds of fantasy books. This felt like the right price point, especially for a beginning new author for a debut book. So at $26.99, I make $3.11 off of each sale. And that's it. That is something you have to keep in mind. When you print a hardcover, it's a lot more expensive and it's going to mean your compensation is lower. When you print a mass market, your compensation level can be higher. So you have to consider that when you're looking at your formatting. What about the ebooks? Like I would think since you're creating the thing, they're just distributing it, they're going to take a cut, but probably not as much. I would assume, but I could be completely wrong. My ebook edition is $3.99 and I make $1.60 off of that. So, so it like is a significantly higher percentage that you're able to keep off of the ebooks. Mm -hmm. And you're also more likely to get ebook sales because of the lowered price point. One of the other things that is kind of important is talk to indie booksellers. They will help you figure out the best way to price and format your books too. And uh, I was able to talk with a lady who told me that I really need to bump up my ebook price because it's not at a level that is actually a good comp. 
and that she did the, well, the hardcover is at a good comp level. It's at a good price, but that I really need to get that mass market out because it's going to be something more attractive to even the small booksellers to put on their shelves because they have less risk with something like that. So after we get all those things all done, we have to all take all these things and, and then look at the, the proofreading and go down that, that checklist. What, what are the things that we need to do beyond that? You need to check your index, your table of contents, your glossary, your references that you've got going in, all that fiddly stuff that you worked off at the beginning. And you can speak to this as well, LJ, your, your layout of your book, of your positioning of your map and all of those other little bits, right? Yeah. This is the time for all of that final proofreading because if you find out six months later that there's a major mistake, then you have to go and get your new ISBN and all of that. It's much, much harder. I know I personally, I went through everything. I reread it. I did a ton of looking at it. You're still going to miss some things. And that's the key thing with your proofreading. It is the final check before print. So what do you need to go through for your checklist? Everything. Every single aspect of that book you need to review. And how does it look? And oftentimes when you're doing your self-publishing, you can actually get a copy sent to you before it goes, before it's printed, it's finalized before it gets sent out for the world to see, you can get a test copy. And that's where you're going to look through is the test copy. How does it look? How does it feel? All the little elements and details and all that stuff. And again, like LJ said, you will miss stuff. And one thing to kind of add to all of this is that enjoy the process, especially when this is your first book. Like it's all really stressful. But when you get that first author copy that you're looking at and you're proofreading and you're opening up that book for the first time, like take a moment to savor it and enjoy it. You know, seeing your book actually printed for the first time and getting to pick it up and whatnot is amazing. It is a great feeling. It's a terrifying feeling, but take that moment to enjoy the process because you've earned it. But also from all of us, congratulations on getting yourself to this point. This is a really exciting point to be in. It's stressful. It really is. But you're here. You've made it. It's amazing. Enjoy it. And congratulations. So LJ, do you have some prep for us? I do. So to prep for the next episode, I want you guys to create a list of things that you personally need to prep your book to be ready to proofread and to publish. So look into the contractors you might need to contact and just develop a priority list, your top three people you really want to make sure you have in the budget. So your cover artists, uh, potentially someone to format the interior. And since we're going to be leading into our next episode of dealing with marketing, maybe paying for one of those. And as uh, your recommendation of the month, start researching marketing tactics. Because like LJ said, our whole topic for next month is now what? Marketing your book. And of course, a little bit of further homework on top of all of that is follow us on social media. You can find The Scribe's Journey on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram, and of course, through our Patreon, where you get to become a patron and get some insider information that other people don't get to see. So from all three of us, thank you for joining us for this episode. Now go sharpen your quill and get back to writing.
This episode of Scribe's Journey has been presented by Wax Seal Productions Incorporated and remixed by T.R. Elder.